Hello, and welcome to Dead North, Minnesota Horror Theater for Your Ears. I'm Sean Dillon, your host, and as usual, we have auditory horror performances from several different Minnesota-based theater artists, all on a theme. And our theme this round is, appropriately enough, summer. As a child of the 80s, summer horror has a very specific flavor for me. Stephen King meets Steven Spielberg meets kids with too much time on their hands. So, Stranger Things, basically. A world of lake trips, BMX bikes, and home-recorded VHS tapes. A warm, nostalgic glow over everything. Funny, isn't it, that the brightest, hottest part of the year should lend itself so well to chills? It should be such a safe time. Maybe that's why it isn't. The brightest sun casts the sharpest shadows. Our first piece up today is Blue Harvest by Hot Chocolate Media. If, like me, you're a nerdy child of the 80s, that name may sound familiar, but I don't want to give too much away. Suffice to say, this one starts with that most American of summer traditions, the rummage sale. Okay, uh, here we go. Uh, recording. It is May 7th, 1998, and for posterity's sake, I want to record an account of something odd that happened. I, I still can't really wrap my head around it, but here we go while the memories are fresh. It started when I picked up an old copy of Star Wars on, on VHS, but it seems to be something else entirely. Um, I, I bought the tape at a garage sale. It was just one of those Maxwell VHS boxes with a handwritten label on it said Blue Harvest, which as we all know is weird because that's the production title for Return of the Jedi, Not a New Hope. Um, the lady told me it was her brother's and he had passed away, but she didn't think it was worth anything. I was buying a retro desk lamp for my office anyway, so when I asked about the VHS tape, she just said to take it. Cool. I popped it in, but but stuff was weird, and not just like regular bootleg vintage VHS weird either. It's like some of the audio was distorted and pitch shifted, and it still had like the David Prowse dialogue for Darth Vader in spots. Occasionally, the background characters seem to be staring directly at the camera. One of the extras, in particular, a rebel soldier who was killed by the stormtroopers, seemed to stare at me from the edge of the frame. He, he lay flat in the corridor of the Tantan IV. Um, that's, uh, that's Leia's ship in the first movie, for those without a technical manual of fictional starships on their shelf. Um, anyway, he, he was laying there on the ground, a huge blast mark in his chest. He was just staring at me with an expression of regret and pain. Kept shutting the tape off because that face haunted me. I swear it kept showing up at other places in the film, but I would rewind to go back. I couldn't find anything. Though admittedly the quality tape was so bad, it, it could have been, I don't know, something. I started having nightmares about this rebel soldier in pain, killed while he was utterly afraid I put it all out of my mind, and I didn't touch the tape for several weeks, but one day while cleaning up, the tape fell off the shelf, and a business card that was inside the case was on the ground, and I suddenly remembered the, the lady running the garage sale was a realtor. She was passing them out to everyone, asking them if they were selling their house. I, I must have put it in the case and never given it another thought. I had to know what was up with this tape, so I, I gave her a call, 
and set up a meeting in her office uh, under the pretense of wanting to sell my house. Uh, her office was in a strip mall and covered in that faux wood paneling that was popular in the 70s. She invited me over into her office and she was very friendly. I, I, I don't really remember what she was talking about. My attention was drawn immediately by a photo on her desk. The lady was in it, but she was much, much younger. And it was one of those large, like, family gathering photos. But there, in the middle, was the rebel soldier. But he, he wasn't a rebel soldier. He was just, like, a normal dude. But that was his face. There was no mistaking it. He, he sat there with the same eyes, the same face, but there was life in them and, and a smile. My curiosity gave way to any fear of social awkwardness at this point. And I just asked her who the man was in the photo. She looked up from her notes she was jotting down and took a pensive sort of moment for herself and told me it was her big brother and died several years ago in an accident some kind in college. Then, I can't believe I did this, I asked her if he was ever an actor in Star Wars. She was just taken aback by this, obviously. Even laughed a little. She said that her brother dreamed of being in those films and even went to those geek conventions, as she called it. She said he was obsessed with those movies, owned tons of toys and comic books, anything with Star Wars he could get his hands on. She even joked and said, I bet he would sell his soul to anyone offering a chance to be in those goofy space movies. Yeah, so we, we all would. I could tell she loved him and missed her brother, but it's obvious she didn't, you know, care or approve of his Star Wars fandom or, or Star Wars much at all. But based on her description, he seemed like a fun guy, and I bet we would have gotten along well. I told her I was sorry for bothering her, and I left. When I got home, I, I watched the tape all the way through, and every once in a while, I swear, one of the background characters looked just like him. and He would just stare right at me, and I could never get the tape to pause exactly at that moment. Always a split second away from the pause button, it seemed like it was eluding me. Somewhere on the tape, just waiting. I had to know more, so I, I went down to the local library and I started going through all the old, like, microfiche and records of local newspapers. I had to find anything about the realtor's brother. I made daily trips for weeks and, and I found nothing. I, I finally found his obituary, but that was pretty pedestrian. It was, it was kind, but, but, but factual, listing his family members and where he went to school, you know, there had to be something more. Had to be. After countless more days at the library going through old papers, high school yearbook collections, the only other thing I could find was a picture of him in the local newspaper shaking hands with a man. The caption was, local comic book fan wins popular radio contest. The picture was very blurry and being an older black and white printout, transferred to microfiche and so on, could barely make out the man whose face I saw in my sleep. I paid for a printout of the microfiche of the photo and took it home and just stared at it. I wasn't sure what else to do, but at this point I was so obsessed. Every time I closed my eyes, that face was there begging me to end the suffering. And finally, I just decided to burn the tape and the printout. I, I know that sounds like the panic response of a dumb teenager who got freaked out by their Ouija board, but I, I didn't know what else to do. I placed the items in my barbecue in the backyard and doused them the charcoal starter to make sure they went up quick. Fire burned fast and the smell of melted plastic and black smoke filled my yard. But I refused to take my eyes off them until I knew they were fully turned to ash. I wanted to make sure they were gone. Once the flames went out, I, I started cleaning out the ashes to toss them. And in the middle of the pile of ash, there was a perfect, unharmed ticket stub. I am 
absolutely 100% sure there is nothing else in there but the tape and the microfiche printout. I'm holding this ticket stub in my hand right now as I record this. It's to a double feature for Star Wars and Smokey and the Bandit dated 5-25-77. I, I, I didn't know what else to do, so I... I Blue Harvest was written and produced by Kyle Decker and Jacob Gulliver, and performed by Kyle Decker. Additional sounds provided courtesy of freesound.org. Find more original geeky work by Hot Chocolate Media at hotchocolatemedia.net or on your favorite social network. <laughs> that ending. It's like running right off the edge of a ripped page. Certainly there is something sinister going on here, but we're denied the satisfaction of resolution. We do know one thing. It isn't good. I'm led to wonder whether something has emerged from the tape or something new has been pulled into it. Either way, a dead-eyed rebel trooper staring out at me from the screen is an image newly seared into my mind. So thanks a lot, guys. Hot Chocolate Media are our producing partners on Dead North, bringing all this work to your ears. They specialize in geeky content across many sorts of, well, media, and their work has been seen and lauded at the Minnesota Fringe Festival and many of their other projects can be found at hotchocolatemedia.net. Next up, we have The Real Me by Paradox Productions. Summer seems like a wonderful time to meet that special someone and take long walks in the park. But dating, as so many women know all too well, is a minefield. Welcome back to The Real Me, the dating app that connects you to attractive singles looking for genuine connections. Keep swiping for matches. You have a match, Lucy. Press here to connect. Hi. Donovan. Hi, Lucy. I really like your mustache. Why, thank you. It's very Ron Swanson. That was my goal. I grew it for that costume once and kept it. You have a very pretty smile. Thank you. Would you like to meet this weekend? Oh, that's soon, but sure. What do you have in mind? How about on Saturday? We could get ice cream then walk around Lake Harriet. That's a nice idea. How about 6 p.m.? Perfect. I'll see you there. We're so lucky to have access to lakes. We are. It's so pretty being here at night, with the water hitting the shore. <laughs> I feel a little bit like I'm in a Jaws movie. Oh yeah, like when the couple would go skinny dipping before getting mauled. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll see a fin peek out of the water. Maybe. It's so clear out tonight. I know. I love it when you can see all the stars. Like when going camping. Yes. Camping is so fun. Do you like mountain biking? I've never gone, but I like other outdoor stuff. I own my own kayak. Wow, cool. One thing I remember from high school econ class is that our teacher told us all how to steal a kayak. Huh, weird. What did he say? He said that you just carry it out and one of the clerks will assume another clerk sold it to you. I suppose that's true, as long as you have a buddy to help you carry it. Right. This is getting pretty late. Yeah, I should get home too. Where did you park? I took the bus to the Rose Garden and walked from there. Oh, I'm parked near there. I could walk you. Okay. 
What part of St. Paul do you live in? I lived in Highland Park for a few years. Actually, I'm in Woodbury. Oh. The app might have generalized my location. Sure. Where are you? Near Powderhorn Park, Minneapolis. Nice. Your dogs are really cute in your pictures. What are their names? Uh, Rufus and Morty. <laughs> do they like to sleep with you? Well, no, since they live with my mom. Oh. Probably shouldn't say you have dogs, then. Really? <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> it seems like they live with me, since my daughter likes to see them a lot. You have kids? Yeah. Okay. Oh, look how pretty the roses are right now. Let's go in. I don't think we're supposed to at night. Oh, come on. That white one over there looks pretty in the moonlight. Which one? Uh, over there by the fountain. It looks like it's sparkling. Good eye. You're an artist, right? Actor. Uh, what kind of skits do you do? Uh, not skits. Plays. Like at the Guthrie? No, not there. You know, if you ever want to act at that Guthrie, I bet you could get your feet wet by being an usher or something. Never mind. I, I really want a woman who is creative and intelligent and... And beautiful and, and sarcastic. And yeah, I saw that in your profile. You had a long paragraph of what you're looking for, but didn't say much about yourself. Well, I prefer to show myself in person, you know? Oh, I'm not ready for that yet. No? Yeah, I mean, we're just meeting, getting a feel for each other. Well, I really like you. You don't know me. I can tell from your profile that you care about animals, you love historical fiction and baking. From tonight, I can tell that you're... you're funny. Not bad. Can you tell anything about me? What's a favorite memory you have about your daughter? And what's her name? Lila. Last week, I, I taught her how to ride her bike. I'll never forget the look on her face when she realized I wasn't holding on anymore. For a split second, she was scared, but had so much fun figuring out she could do it and getting faster. We spent hours just biking in circles in the driveway. That's lovely. What time does your bus come? Let me check. Shoot, it doesn't come for 20 minutes. I don't want to leave you here in the dark alone. Would you like a ride home? Um... I'm not a weirdo. Promise. What's your favorite park in town? The Cliftony French Regional Park. You? Loring Park. Oh, it's pretty there. I like to watch the ducks. Yes! You're hilarious! Yeah. What's your favorite restaurant? I, I don't know, Barbette. I've never been there. What's their most famous dish? Their brunch is pretty good. Mmm, I love brunch. We should go there sometime. What's your favorite restaurant in Woodbury? Well. I usually go to Key's Cafe for lunch, which is great. What about for dinner? Not usually there for dinner, unless I'm meeting some buddies after work. Why? I work in Woodbury. You don't live there? No, actually, I, I live in Wisconsin. What? But I'm planning on moving to Minneapolis once my divorce is finalized. What? I didn't want to tell you because I knew you wouldn't want to meet me, but I, I really wanted to meet you. You're so cool and pretty, I couldn't help it. I'm over there on the left. I'm sorry. 
You lied. You totally lied several times. I'm so sorry. I need to go. I can make it up to you. Oh, yeah? How? I picked this at the garden. It reminded me of your hair. Wasn't that sweet of me? Did you lie about anything else? No, everything else is true. I was myself tonight. I feel like I can really be myself around you. And your daughter, Lila? Yes! Well, well, she's my ex's daughter, but she feels like mine. I feel like I can really be myself around you, too. the real me. Did you meet in person? Was your date successful? Congratulations, Lucy. We hope you two will be very happy together. This has been presented by Paradox Productions, written by Katherine Hansen, performed by Katherine Hansen and Sam Ahern. Outro music is Game Boy Horror by the Zombie Dandies from the Free Music Archive. The horror here, for me, is not in the ending. The ending is downright cheery as far as I'm concerned. The monster isn't a monster at all, she's a public servant. And that's because everything up to that point is so true to life in its sinking horror especially for women. Putting oneself out into the dating pool is an act of bravery, knowing that men just like this one truly are out there, all too happy to endlessly manipulate reality to get what they want. And you never know just how far that impulse may extend. Paradox Productions, led by Katherine Hansen, has been producing in the Twin Cities since 2014, most recently their award-winning chocolate-covered chicken wings at Minnesota Fringe. And that brings us to Sharks Taking Things Personally by Reverend Matt's Monster Science. At this point, we all know it isn't safe to go back into the water. But this, as they say, is the rest of the story. Hi, I'm Reverend Matt, and sharks! Sharks, I yell! Fifty million orphans are killed by sharks every second! Fact! Okay, I mean, not a fact, clearly, but of course sharks are extremely dangerous. Sharks do kill people. Of course, so do falling anvils, and neither of these things does so anywhere near as much as our popular entertainments might have led us to believe. But it does happen, certainly. In fact, though it is of course quite rare, more people die per year of bathtub accidents than of shark attack, they just don't get the menacing theme music, it does seem that sharks kill people more regularly than any other predatory animal. The others know better. Speaking generally, if anything so much as looks at humanity cross-eyed, we will slaughter it wholesale as a species and salt the earth where it stood. The only animals currently surviving are the ones who know not to mess with us. They have evolved beyond it. But sharks, famously, aren't much for evolution. 
This is wrong too, of course, and this is not meant to be a presentation focusing on people being wrong about sharks. What it is meant to be is a presentation about the classic modern fictional story about shark attack, which is of course 1975's Sharknado The Fourth Awakens, or no, Jaws, directed by a young Steven Spielberg, who would of course later be most famous for being the producer of the animated television show Freakazoid. As an aside, I want you to know that I accidentally typed a T into Sharknado, and autocorrect did in fact suggest just regular Sharknado, because we live in a wicked and fallen world. The Sharknado movies are bad, is what I'm saying, whereas the original Jaws is the other thing. I'm going to assume you've seen it, and hence will not concern myself with spoilers. When I get to its sequels, I will also not worry about spoilers, although in their cases not because I believe everyone's seen them, but rather because who cares. Jaws, of course, begins with a few isolated shark attacks at an island resort town. Our hero, the police chief, wants the beaches closed, but the mayor of the town refuses as the summer tourist season is just ramping up. So, there are plain signs that many people will die if action isn't taken, but the political leaders refuse to do anything about it over callous, purely economic concerns. That Steven Spielberg. What an imagination. Of course, the difference between this movie and the live, in-person, nationwide reimagining of it that has been our last year is that the mayor in the movie finally relents when the shark kills a boy at a beach where his own children had been, whereas Trump would, of course, watch his entire family be flayed alive for a free Diet Coke. The movie culminates in an epic ocean-born shark hunt taken on by three men, each of them embodying a classic reaction to fear and the unknown. Shark hunter Quint is furious, vengeful. Marine biologist Hooper is full of scientific curiosity. And our police chief Brody is stalwart, but basically afraid, which is appropriate for our point of view character. Absent is a fourth major reaction to fear and the unknown, which would be my own, among others, which would be an offer of unconditional moral, spiritual, and financial support to the shark. Quint's desire for revenge is particularly fascinating. He tells a story to the other two men about how he'd been aboard the USS Indianapolis, the ship that delivered the key parts of the atomic bomb to be used at Hiroshima, when the ship was sunk by a Japanese torpedo. This is all true, the Indianapolis did all that, and after it was sunk, its crewmen were in fact attacked by sharks. In Quince and Spielberg's story, though, the crewmen were absolutely swarmed with sharks, thousands of them, tearing the sailors apart. And so some people deliver the first atomic bomb, and nature itself rises up in vengeance. It's just a moment of the film. Spielberg doesn't hit you over the head with it, as he is pretty good at movies. But it lends the affair a certain mythic power, absent in stories that content themselves with Ono oh Shark. Of course, not all the credit goes to Spielberg. Jaws was based on a novel, which are these things that people write in hopes that somebody will eventually make them into movies, of the same name by Peter Benchley, who originally had the idea in 1965 after hearing of a 17-foot great white being caught off Montauk Island, New York. Working originally with such titles as Stillness in the Water, Leviathan Rising, and The Jaws of Death, he eventually decided to go with the minimalism of using one word from that last title, and wisely settled on Jaws rather than Of. 
This, of course, would become iconic, this elegantly simple name, as, of course, would John Williams's similarly incredibly minimal music for the impending shark, a simple score of two repeated notes that everybody in the English-speaking world at least recognizes for exactly what it is immediately, and which, when it appears in the film, makes me clap my little hands and giggle like a schoolgirl. Famously, the making of Jaws was fraught with very great difficulties, including script problems, last-minute casting, huge problems caused by this being the first-ever major motion picture to be filmed largely on the actual ocean, Charlton Heston wanting to be involved. It was nobody's picnic. I wonder if Heston was at the point in his personal character arc where he would have pushed for killing the shark in the end with an all-American, over-the-counter personal firearm. Twenty-five feet long, three tons in weight, bang! Bang, bang! But the most famous of these difficulties was that a mechanical shark was built at very great expense and that it basically didn't work. And this forced Spielberg to shoot the shark in suggestions of it, underwater, off-screen, and so forth. And this, you know, made it a good movie. A lot of good stuff happens in this movie, but above all it is a masterpiece of tension, of hidden fear. Now, this isn't entirely because the mechanical shark didn't work. Throughout the first two-thirds of the movie, the ante is slowly upped. We see the first kill only as the victim thrashing around, and the second, my own favorite, starts with the same, but then also includes a vague, dark shape, no shark fin or head, barely visible above the water for just a moment. So the film was always going to have a build, but then there was going to be a big reveal and the shark fully visible. It's unthinkable now for this movie famous for its mastery of suspense, but what you've got to understand is that this was originally going to be an old-school monster movie, a Godzilla or King Kong, rather than the watery Hitchcock we know. And of course, Godzillas and King Kongs are wonderful, and part of the reason you'd go to the trouble of designing the appearance of a monster is so that the audience may then examine it. Monsters are very often about spectacle. But we do get a few good looks at the shark here, and... Anyway, we know what sharks look like, and Jaws did a new thing in eschewing spectacle, and it did it extraordinarily well. So well, in fact, that it was a game-changer for cinema as we understand it. This was one of the generative summer blockbusters, extensively marketed and released to thousands of theaters simultaneously, none of which was the standard at the time. But its wild success, it became the highest-grossing movie of all time for a while, changed all that. It changed movie-making in general. And, of course, it spawned countless imitators as well as three sequels. For want of time, we will focus here on just those latter three movies. Jaws 2 was released in 1978 and included such people from the first movie as almost nobody, which, of course, is very nearly a guarantee of sequel quality. One exception was the lead, Roy Scheider, as Chief Brody, though he only did the film because he was trying to get out of his contract with the studio, and they offered to release him if he did just this one film. He clashed heavily with its director, Jeannot Swark, including one meeting in which the two went right ahead and had a fist fight. And how could this movie even turn out bad? How? For all this, Scheider does turn in a fine performance, although his character arc is a little strange. He is obviously having a great deal of difficulty processing the trauma of the first movie, seeing sharks everywhere now, at one point seeing a dark shape in the water and walking out onto the beach and shooting it over and over again with his pistol. Bang, 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 as beachgoers scream and run all around him. He wonders if another shark might have come to avenge the previous one's death, and is told, quote, 
sharks don't take things personally, Mr. Brody, which is kind of hilarious given what happens in the fourth movie, but we'll get to that. But then, of course, there is a shark, so he is irrational but also correct, and I'm not really sure what I'm looking at here. But Scheider doesn't save the movie. It lacks the humor of the original and Spielberg's big storytelling, and it seems to believe that building tension is the same thing as nothing ever happening, really. Which is wrong. That's wrong. There is a bit of cool shark stuff, which I suppose is the point, but if you really want more Jaws, the best thing to do is just watch the first one again. Five years later came Jaws 3D, with the tagline, The Third Dimension is Terror, which was not quite as good as the previous movies, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, and also not quite as good as pounding nails into your skull. In this one, the now grown-up sons of Chief Brody are at SeaWorld, where one of them works, when the theme park is infiltrated by a 35-foot shark. This does not appear to be at all connected with their father's experiences. It's just a remarkable coincidence. That or this is just a world full of giant sharks that infiltrate SeaWorld. It's real SeaWorld, by the way, not an actual location of the park, but it is loaded with SeaWorld branding. There are gratuitous sequences of dolphins performing aerial stunts. Shamu the killer whale appears. He was a famous SeaWorld killer whale because we as a culture used to have those. And so on. It's elaborate and constant product placement, a feature-length advertisement for SeaWorld. And then, of course, the shark shows up there and kills a bunch of people. At the SeaWorld. This just seems to me like a strong choice advertising-wise, that's all. Come to SeaWorld, we have Shamu, performing dolphins, enormous sharks that will gorily slaughter you. It is perhaps for this association, though, that this is the only one of the films with any facts about sharks that make them seem like anything other than torpedoes with buzzsaws attached to the front. We see some people helping an injured shark by escorting it around a pool, helping it to breathe, some dolphins attack a shark at its gills, which is a real thing. They do this, by the way, to rescue humans, and dolphins rescuing humans is also a real thing, though perhaps it shouldn't be. Dolphins, dolphins, speaking generally, humans are not your amigos, you guys. Now, none of this is to say that this is a good movie. It's dumber than a box of rocks. The special effects are terrible. I've never seen it in 3D, but you can see when it's trying to be 3D, and it is extremely goofy. The one final thing I will say about it in the realm of the positive is that it does feature Leah Thompson, who is always nice to see. She's attacked by the shark and lives. In my headcanon, she then changes her name to Beverly, moves to Cleveland, and encounters a humanoid duck, and just generally leads a life full of bad creature nonsense. Then in 1987, we got Jaws the Revenge, which, spoiler alert, is also not very good. There's a reputation among the sequels that number two is a boring cash-in, but basically watchable, and then three and four are actively terrible. But I have not found this to be true. All three of the sequels are just kind of equally tedious and mediocre, though each in their own special way. In Jaws the Revenge, we rejoin Chief Brody's wife after the Chief has died, and their two children, who are now played by completely different actors than in the previous film, and indeed we are ignoring all of its events. And that's sequel excellence bingo. Mrs. Brody, like her husband two movies ago, is processing trauma conspicuously badly and, like him, is nevertheless correct. In her case, what she's correct about is that... After she goes to the Bahamas early in the movie, the giant shark has followed her for vengeance. 
How, she, how he knew she was there is unrevealed. You must understand that it wasn't as easy to find people in those days without the internet. Maybe he just knew someone at the post office. In the novelization of the book, it is revealed that the actual vindictive party is a voodoo practitioner with a beef with the Brody family who is controlling the shark, and that is not better. This is not even hinted at in the movie, though it does feature Mrs. Brody being able to sense it whenever someone is attacked by this shark, regardless of where she is or what she is doing. She also has flashbacks to events for which she is not present, though it is difficult to tell if this is more of her mutant superpowers or just terrible movie making. Her good news is that she is being wooed by a man played by Sir Michael Caine, who is also always nice to see, and it's also nice to see two older people having a romance in a movie. Caine is charming as always, though he would later say of the movie, I have never seen it, but by all accounts it is terrible. However, I have seen the house that it built, and it is terrific. So, at least the Jaws sequels got Michael Caine a nice house and their cornball nature li likely got the ball rolling on the numberless, completely bonkers and or idiotic shark movies that have come out since. I have quite a lot to say about the Sharktopus trilogy. But that is for another time. Sharks Taking Things Personally by Monster Science Productions has been an episode of Reverend Matt's Monster Science, written, performed, and recorded by Matthew Kesson. And there you have it. Reverend Matt's multimedia lectures on all things monstrous can be enjoyed in any number of different venues across the Twin Cities, where he also appears as an actor in other projects. If his voice sounds familiar, it may be because he performed in Rogues Gallery Arts The Monkey's Paw in our last episode, and delivered another one of his signature lectures in Blight Christmas, Dead North's holiday predecessor. More of his work can be found at ReverendMattsMonsterScience.com. Delightful as always, Matthew. Thank you. Next, and finally, we have S'mores by Big Fun Radio Fun Time. If there's anything more quintessentially summer horror than scary stories around a campfire, I don't know it. S'mores is presented by Big Fun Radio Fun Time. Okay, everyone. It's time to make s'mores. Hooray! Come on, Harry! You love s'mores! I'm still putting up the tent, Judith. You can start without me. Don't be a spoil sport, Daddy. I'll make you one. That's okay, Becky. I'll make one myself in a little bit. What's wrong, Harry? You seem upset. I'm not upset. I just don't like camping around here. But this is where we met. I know. I... I guess I just don't like setting up the tents after dark. Well, I'll help you once we're done with the s'mores. You should come over here and protect your family. I think you can handle yourself. Maybe so. But we'd feel a lot safer if you were here with us. Yeah, Dad. You shouldn't be leaving women or children out here alone. <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, you startled us. Old Man McGillicuddy's the name. I own a farm just a little way from here. Live there alone. Saw your campfire and... Thought I'd stop by to say hello. Hello. As you can see, we're just fine, so thanks for stopping by. Folks camp here ever so often. I always stop by and say hello on account of my living all alone at the farm. Well, hello. Would you like a s'more? I'm sure he doesn't. 
Due to allergies, s'mores are literally the only food I can digest. I'd love one. Here you go. Hey, mister, you live around here all your life? All my life. Except for the five years I joined a cult and participated in the black arts, that is. Ooh, what was that like? Not bad. We had a potluck supper every Thursday. Had wild orgies with werewolves. Played bingo. Pretty typical cult stuff, really. Oh, sure, there was a human sacrifice every now and then, but I don't do that sort of thing any longer. (laughs) Of course you don't. Just an occasional bloodletting these days. I I think it's more out of habit than anything else. Say, this s'more is tasty. Well, if you're finished, you could go. Not before I warn you. You know, Mr. McGillicuddy... Old man McGillicuddy. Right. Old man McGillicuddy. You don't need to yell. Don't I? Will you listen to me if I don't yell? Let's... Give it a try. Sounds a bit unorthodox, but I'll see how it goes. About five years ago, there was a family a lot like yours that camped out right about here. On this spot. I came out and they fed me s'mores, just like you did. And then, I returned to my house, where I live alone. Next morning, their camp was all torn up. It was like a wild animal had ripped up their tents. Not a one of them was left. Alive? Huh? Oh, uh, uh, no, no. They'd all skedaddled in the middle of the night. They they were fine. Staying at a Motel 6 just down the road. Nancy runs that place. So they got scared away? Not really. It was a pretty cold night, and I guess they got a bit uncomfortable, you know. Didn't pack for the weather. What tore up the tent? Some say it was a wolf. Others say it was a bear. Still others say it was a pack of angry voles. Let me tell you what I think. What do you think? I think it was a foul beast from the pits of hell! Ha <laughs> ha! Funny! Look, if your story is done, we're just... Don't let him talk, Harry. I want to know why he thinks it was a foul beast from the pits of hell. I'll tell you why. I don't think this is going to be... Many years ago, in colonial times, there was a coven of witches that made their home in these woods. They kept mostly to themselves. Knitted sweaters that they sold at the local trading post held the occasional naked homecoming dance. But they also dabbled in the summoning of demons. Really? Were they nice sweaters? Yes, actually. See, they had an alpaca farm, and those sweaters, boy, they were as soft as a little bit. Anyway. Anyway, the legend tells us that they mostly summoned minor demons to do stuff around the house. The demons would spin alpaca fur into yarn, cook dinner, clean up alpaca dung, that sort of thing. Ain't you the demons to do that? Well, it was colonial times. There weren't any underprivileged folk desperate for jobs that didn't pay a living wage like there are today. And the demons just did the chores for them? Oh, sure. Cleaning alpaca dung is a whole lot less unpleasant 
than being in hell. I can imagine. But one day, they summoned a major demon. A demon so powerful, it wasn't content to simply do household chores. It thirsted for the blood of mortal men. And the witch coven gave blood to that demon in the form of weary fur traders and the occasional indigenous person. Although, I do want to stress that they really tried to stick to fur trappers because, well, the fur trappers, they were the biggest pains in the ass. And, and the coven, they, they got on quite well with the local tribes. They didn't want to mess with that. Oh, that was very thoughtful of them. But I have to warn you! <laughs> the demon is immortal. And it still stalks these woods. It disguises itself to feed on unsuspecting hikers. Because it still needs blood. It wants blood. It must have blood. It could be disguised as anyone. Look, this is all quite cute, but it doesn't make any sense. A witch's coven here in colonial times? We're in Minnesota. This part of the country wasn't settled by Europeans until well after the Revolutionary War. And alpaca aren't North American animals. They've only been imported and farmed for like the last 50 years or so. Well, I'll admit that the story has been passed down through generations, and you know, that kind of oral history typically can result in a few inaccuracies, but nonetheless, a demon still prowls these woods, and it could be coming for you. But how will we recognize it? <laughs> Don't encourage him, honey. If there's a demon in these woods, I'm sure she's just as scared of us as we are of her. The legend says that there are some things that just can't disguise. When it is hungry, its eyes glow red, as if they're on fire. <laughs> oh, that's just ridiculous. And when it is about to feed, its hands are covered in scales and have long talons, almost like those of an eagle. In fact, demon's hands look just a little bit like this. <laughs> I had you going there, didn't I? <laughs> Fake eagle talons get him every time. <laughs> Don't worry, little lady. Nothing to be scared of in these woods, except a hungry bear or two, and the occasional mass serial killer, but you're far too young to be sexually active, so you should be fine. I really didn't appreciate the prank. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Missy. Living out here all alone can get mighty boring. I need to do something to break the monotony until the new season of The Mandalorian hits. This is the way. I think you should probably go. Well, we, we can all be friends, right? <laughs> Just a harmless little joke. Uh, can I have one more s'more? I was really scared, Mom. I know, dear. That wasn't very nice at all. You really need to leave right now. Well, let me just finish this s'more and uh, say, Miss, I never noticed how red your eyes were. I don't imagine you took a very close look at my hands, either. Get him, Mom! Oh, God! You're her! Stay away from me! You don't scare our little girl. Right, Harry? That... thing... is not my daughter. Oh, Harry, of course she's your daughter. And mine. Now... Who 
want some intestine on there some more? I do. Here you go, darling. When you're done, we'll visit Old Man McGillicuddy's house. We need to be extra sure he lived alone. S'mores by Big Fun Radio Fun Time was written, produced, and directed by Tim Wick. It was performed by Don Krasnowski, Bridget Foy, Charles Hubble, and Duck Washington. I have to be honest. Based on the elevator pitches I received from today's companies, I had no idea we had two stories of monstrous women in disguise on the docket. But I kind of love that it turned out that way. Horror, at its best, is fantastic at holding a mirror up to our world. And right now, it feels like we're in the midst of a turning point, when people in power who have acted with impunity for a very long time, men in particular, are finally starting to face a reckoning. At last, there are starting to be consequences for men behaving badly. And there's a lot of fear around that. Good. The performances here are, of course, a joy. Big Fun Radio Fun Time, under the direction of Tim Wick, is a stalwart of Dead North, having produced both for our previous episode and our Blight Christmas holiday special. It is always a delight to have them. Keep an ear out for their upcoming original audio production, Peggy Star Jockey and the Subjugation of Herculon 5. I have no idea what it's about, but that sounds marvelous. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Dead North is produced by Sean and Mallory Dillon of Oncoming Productions, with assistance from Kyle Decker and Jacob Gulver of Hot Chocolate Media. Our theme music is by Eric Ostrom. The rights to individual pieces presented are retained by their creators, all rights reserved. Ordinarily, the artists you just heard sell tickets for the privilege of enjoying their work on stage, as they should. Their art has value. If you enjoyed what you heard and want to support these artists and help us continue to attract top talent for future episodes, stop by oncomingproductions.com to find out how you can donate to this podcast. Think of it as buying a ticket to this dark little theater for your ears. Our next episode is coming up in October, so keep an ear out. Until then, this is your host, Sean Dillon, signing off. Stay safe out there.